Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Judges, Famine, and Loss, was given on July 1st, 2018 by Jason Shea in the series, Ruth, Fully Devoted. I get to, I get to teach, so I don't do that very often, I know, yeah. right? Um, I know. It's, uh, so Bethany and I, we're always like in the middle, we're always you know, trying to figure out what the next thing we're going to teach on for... Um, for the season ahead, we try to plan a few months out, and we were really wrestling with this one quite a bit. And we decided to go with the Book of Ruth, um, and Ruth is one of my uh, my favorites. But um, so I'm, I get to teach most of the summer, which is kind of fun. Um, and Bethany is going to be uh, working a few days a week on her book. She has. Oh, you didn't it's know. I, right <laughs> it's not on Facebook Live, so. Well, you guys just, have to keep me accountable then. <laughs> she's been, she's had, she's, she's felt drawn to, to write for a long time, and we have finally found a space that she can probably try to do that a bit. So, um, she's not like taking a sabbatical or anything. It's just she's going to take, take, be able to take a couple days a week without kids and a husband to see what God stirs. So, um, I'm excited for her, uh, but she'll have a small break over the summer to. I guess pour her energy into something different. Um, anything you want to say about that? No. Okay. But you're all welcome to ask me about things yeah. if you need to. Right. And just pray. So yeah. Anyway, um, you can ask her about that. So anyway, we're going to be uh, looking at the the story of uh, the book of Ruth uh, over the course of the summer. And how many people have read Ruth before? Almost everybody. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so uh, how many people read it, like, grew up in, like, sort of a traditional church setting and, like, heard it as, like, a story taught in Sunday school or something? So just a few of you. Okay, so uh, whatever camp you're in, um, for a minute, just share, like, a word or a phrase that comes to you as you think about Ruth and what you learned about it. And this isn't, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just put it out there. Loyalty. Loyalty. Okay. Sacrifice. All right. Family. Family. Yep. Ruth had a lot of faith in God. Okay. What else? Kind of a love story. A love story. Okay. Anybody else? Support. Yeah, um, one last one. So, um, so I didn't grow up in a traditional church setting um, or like learned about Ruth in Sunday school. And so I don't really have like, I didn't have a lot coming that I was bringing to the story. Um, but I was talking to Bethany about it and she's like, oh, well, Ruth, I mean, like I wanted to be Ruth when I was... A kid, because it's this like romantic story of love, and Boaz is this kinsman redeemer who who rescues her from you know poverty and and uh, and a life of not having a husband, and they go off and they they get married and have children, and so she felt very like that. That's what people think of when they think of Ruth. Does that resonate for any of the anybody? Kinda, yeah. yeah, like this sort of romantic love story. Mm-hmm. It's kind of shady, to be honest. Um, you know, <laughs> it's not exactly. Uh, yeah. 
So um, the one of the, the heroes of the story that we often hear is, his name is Boaz, and uh, he, he sometimes looked at as like the Christ figure, you know, this person who rescues or redeems, redeems her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Oh, because this thing keeps falling down, huh? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and sometimes this, this story kind of, if you've grown up traditionally with it, it kind of comes wrapped with a nice bow because there's like kids at the end and, you know, sort of they live happily ever after. And I mean, not quite that extreme, but you get what I'm saying, right? Um, and, uh, and what I'd like to argue is that I think this story is, um, much different and has significant, significant levels of depth. And I would like to make the argument that Ruth, the story of, well, it's really, I think, the story of Naomi more than it is Ruth. Um, but this story is, is really about a female Job. Female Job? Job. So you've all read the story of Job. Um, what do you, what's that? Job. What do you think of when you think of Job? Suffering. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Lost everything, so health, wealth, family, family. Yeah. what's that? Yeah, like lost, 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 just lost, so much loss, he's right? Really, huh? really faithful. He's really despite faithful, it all. really yeah. faithful despite it all. Anybody else? There's a lot of bitterness for his situation, bitterness by other people, by other people. right? So, Job is a man, and Job has the the, the difference between Job and, um, and, uh, and Naomi or Ruth is, is uh, as a man, you can, you live you, in a very, very, very high patriarchal society, you can start over. You can just go and start over. It's not simple, but you can start over. A woman, someone like Naomi or Ruth, who's lost everything, who finds her identity in her husband, in her sons, loses all of it. And for her, the story's finished. It's a much different perspective. Um, and so I really want to look at this, uh, I want to look at this story as a female joke. And there are a lot of layers in this story. And I, we're only going to look at five verses today, and really only like seven words, but we'll get there. So, um, so for Naomi, her story, really, it's finished. It's so much harder for her to start over. And we're going to look at how this, how this book is even like a critique on patriarchy. Um, so there's a few questions I want us to use when we're, when we're looking at this story. So the first is, how does, how does this story reveal more about God's character and his ways and heart for the world? So in other words... Um, what do we discover about God in this story? I feel like God has to be the center of these stories as we're looking at them and in the humanity of these stories. I mean, these story, this story asks some really, really, really hard questions about loss and despair and moving family from one place to another and going to enemy territory and losing a husband and, and sons all at the same time and immigration and migration and... Um, Depression, bitterness, anger. I mean, these just are so much there. So in that humanity, what do we discover about God in the story? 
So it's a, it's a question I want us to, to, um, to ask. Second one is, um, how, do we, how do we move forward in our own stories? So everyone's at a different place in their life. Everyone has different pain, different brokenness. Some, pl- some people are in a good space where they're, you're maybe in a, a season of joy. But how do we move forward in our stories? Do we have to move through our brokenness? Do we have to move around our pain? And we're going to look at how these characters, uh, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, um, how they move forward in their stories and how we can move forward in our own. Are you with me? Yes. So when I think of this, um, I think about you know something that I'm really wrestling with right now, which is just sort of a debilitating anxiety. So I have this anxiety. It's just been over my life for quite some time, and it just doesn't go away. And so I have to, how do I move forward? Because God calls us to move forward in it. Um, Sometimes we just want to get rid of it, but sometimes we have to go through it. And I think that's what we're going to see here in the story. Um, thirdly, the thing, the um, question I want to ask is, what's the counter-narrative that God wants us to see? So has anybody heard the phrase dominant narrative? Okay, so when you hear the word dominant narrative, what, tell me what comes to mind about what that phrase means. The most important perspective, or like the main perspective. The most important perspective, mo- the main perspective, the one that's like taught or we're told to believe, right? Okay, so that's a great definition of it. So now, now take it one step further. What is the dominant narrative that we're told? If, when if I ask you that question, what comes to mind? Like in regards to what, like a specific area of life, or just in our God? culture, like it could be anything. Yeah, money is God. Money is God. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Success is what you see. What's that? Success is what you see. Success is what you see. Okay. What else? Your values, how much money you make, and have kind of the same what they were saying. Your values and how much money you make. Okay. Bigger is better. Stuff can make you happy. Youth reigns. What's that? Youth reigns. Youth reigns. Okay. Yeah. What else? Ian and Claire, I asked the question, uh, what comes to mind when you think of dominant narrative? You don't have to answer. I'm just, everyone's answering. That we're a Christian country. That we're a Christian country? Okay. What else? If it's not Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook worthy, then it's not worth doing. Then it's not worth doing? Or, or even we have to do those things to yeah. put something on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. Or like our life isn't real because it's all about what we're projecting on those forums. Okay. Okay. Beauty. Beauty is Beauty. the best. Yeah. Beauty is the best. Yeah. Identity is how other people perceive you. That's good. Horatio Alger. Say it again, Raj. Horatio Alger. That if you are diligent, you will carve your tombstone on the river. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That is a very dominant theme. That's a dominant theme, yeah. Mm-hmm. And ableism sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything in regards to anything that stirs up from like racial inequality, yeah. immigration, things like that? That we're a tolerant nation. We're a tolerant nation. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I can, I just love this. Uh, I, uh, a compassionate nation. Uh, compassionate nation. But I think on the flip side, another 
strong voices, the lighter your skin, the more like worth your, you know, the more worthy, like your, your words are more important, your ideas are okay. more important. Okay, sure. Uh-huh. It also depends on who you listen to or who you align yourself with. Sure. Yeah, so there's different dominant narratives out there, right? Okay, so you get the idea. So, um, so what I think, this is one of the things I just love about the Bible, is, is that I feel like the story of God is a counter-narrative. I feel like it's constantly trying to show us a different way to approach lives of humans. And so when you think of counter-narrative, what do you think? I'll tell you what I think while you think of something you want to say. So I was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing is a counter-narrative. I mean, you think about blessed are the poor in spirit. The dominant narrative does not bless those who are poor in spirit, right? So what's a, count, what's a counter-narrative that, you, that you've seen of like a truth of God, a truth about something you've, you've gleaned for yourself? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's a great one, right? That is a complete counter-narrative. the least of these is how you treat me. Okay. The golden rule. Yeah. All of the Beatitudes, but the meek shall inherit the earth. The, the meek shall inherit the earth, yeah. Right? That's totally a counter narrative. What else? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Collectivism. Collectivism. Okay. Community mm-hmm. oriented rather than individual. Yep, oriented. totally. Individualism is. Heresy. <laughs> no. Yes, collectivism. Absolutely. Right. Community is, is by far more powerful than, um, I mean, it's, it's what God teaches. It's what scriptures teach. Anything else? Spirit is more important than the body. Okay. Anything else? Okay, so I'm bringing all this up because I think that God wants us to see a counter-narrative that's going to be within this story about how we view other people. I yeah. just, just want to uh, mention about that last one, about the spirit being more important than the body. Um, I think that's Gnostic. And I think what it is is that spirit, body, mind, it's all one, it's all important. You know, when God created the earth, he said it was good. So there's, um, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all one. It's not, uh, it, the card was full of crap. It's not, I think, therefore I am. You know, Cartesian dualism screwed up so much. It's, it's that um, body and mind and spirit are all important. It's all one. God created it all. It's all good. So there's an integration between yeah, yeah. the physical and the spiritual. It's not, yeah. they're not necessarily separate. That's, that's a counter-narrative. Right. Okay. Um, so a couple perspectives that I want us to see um, in this story. I'm just laying foundation here a bit. Um, God is always the hero of the story. Um, I think that if we start to make other people the hero... Um, we miss the point, and I think that I want God to be the center of the story and what we're going to learn about God. I think the Bible's primary purpose is always to teach us more about Him, 
about God's character, God's ways, God's heart for the world and for us. And so that we will trust and love him more and reflect his heart in how we live and interact with others. Um, I want us to see that this story is a smaller story framed in a bigger story. Um, it's sandwiched on both sides that we'll see in a couple minutes here on two parts of Israel's history. And I also want us to see that there's something deeper going on in the story than what we, than what we read. My, uh, I had a professor in, um, a few years ago who said, when you're, when you're doing Bible study and you're prepping for sermons or, or you're reading devotionally, you want to ask the question, like, what's between the lines? So what are we going to discover between the lines? And there's just this, like, wonderful world out there. I love it so much. It's so great. Okay, so um, you guys all with me? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to read um, Ruth, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. And so if you have a Bible, turn there. Um, if it's a Bible that looks like this, it's page 263. Uh, what page are you on? Um, 182. Gray Bibles are 182. 180. And 180 in the, uh, yes. Is everyone there? All right. <clears throat> it says, in the days when the judges rule, ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. The two, are, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she, left, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahalon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. May the Lord add a blessing to his word. So, what's that? Praise be the Lord. Praise be the Lord. So, Ruth is situated in between um, two parts of Israel's history. So, the first is, um, is based on the book of Judges, and, which is not where many people spend their time reading. It's kind of a difficult book. It's a difficult time in Israel's history. Um, I think it's safe to say that uh, Israel went off the tracks and they pursued their own ways, which I think were outside of God's. Um, the, the book begins um, kind of in a good place, but quickly goes into a bad place. And they're, they're kind of uh, entering the land of Canaan and they can't conquer the Canaanites. So things kind of unravel and... Um, Basically, over the course of Judges, there's 12 different people who are appointed as leaders to, um, to be over the Israelites. And they're not kings. They're leaders of sorts. And they're, they're both good and bad. And they all have different intentions. And, um, and, and they're, they're there to provide some kind of guidance and leadership. But Israel doesn't really want to have anything to do with any sort of leader in their midst. Are you with me? So... Um, the end of the book comes to a halting stop um, when Israel really just like kind of derails altogether. Um, and so the, the phrase at the beginning of Ruth is, in the days when the judges rule. So this is kind of a, a nugget of the background of what it's like when the judges ruled. Um, they were going off their track. So I, I, I like to look at it as Israel had basically like given up on God 
they stop following God's path. Does that um, ring a bell for anybody? Maybe some of us have been there. Um, I think Israel found darkness, or you could use the expression, the dark night of the soul. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? Yes. Yeah? You want to say what, what you think that means? The dark night of the soul? Well, there's the dark night of the soul and the dark night of the spirit. Oh. So the dark night of um, the soul is, it's any time where there's a felt absence of God, but that doesn't necessarily, it could be because of where you're at and what you're into, but um, it could be where God removed himself too. The dark night of the spirit is definitely where you're at. It's you're turning your back on God, and then God saying, okay, your will be done. Is you, if you don't want me in your life, then I'm going to step back from it. Okay. So I basically think Israel was trying to find their identity as something other than God. We've all been there. Um, this is what it was like when the days when the judges ruled. So uh, just a quick snapshot, if you were to read through, um, if you were to read through judges, you would kind of, you would start to see like repeating phrases. And in Western culture, we really, um, we miss something in our English translation. And that is we like to phrase things differently over and over again. But in Hebrew writing, you say the same thing over and over again. Um, and it's, it's, we end, end up missing like important concepts. So it's very, very common that you're going to see something written over and over and over again because the author's trying to get something across to you, but not in a different way, in the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, chapter 2, verse 10 of Judges says, Moreover, the whole generations were gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they worshiped the balls, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them up out of Egypt. And it goes on, it says, they abandoned the Lord, and they worshiped Baal and Astares. Those are both just two different gods of different cultures that um, Israel is specifically told to not worship. And they, the text tells us right in the beginning of Judges that they do this. In the days that the judges ruled, Israelites worshiped other gods. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7 the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting their God and worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this goes on and on and on. The Israelites are continuing to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they're sort of moving away from his commandments. Are you with me so far? Yes. So... Chapter 17, verse 6, it switches gears a little bit, and there's another phrase that comes up. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. It says it again in verse 18, in the last verse of Judges. Um, you can just look at the next page. 21, 25 says, in those days, and there was no king in Israel, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Do something to do something right in their own eyes. So I have this quick little story I've got to tell about um, probably the most disturbing piece of scripture. Uh, so there was... That's okay. What's that? Oh, you don't think I should tell it? Um, okay. Yeah, you could read it. There's a very disturbing story in Judges um, 18. It goes, uh, sorry, it starts in 17, it goes 18 and 19. 
And essentially, it's um, about human trafficking, I would say, in a nutshell, without having to get into the details of it. Um, and the story just ends in this very grotesque thing. And you're just left with, this is what it was like in the days when the judges ruled. Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And you, you watch slowly how a generation of Israelites gets corrupted and how their heart strays from the Lord and they start to worship something else and things become, um, how should I say, uh, they, they begin to um, almost get desensitized to perhaps what they're doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You ever watch something or you do something or you eat something or, and you slowly start to realize like, oh, this isn't so bad. This isn't so bad. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you with me? Okay. What's an, anybody have an example of that? I just want to like see this red string. Desensitized to things, you know, yeah. like you feel like wrong, convicted about something, but the more you keep doing it, that just goes away. And yeah. You get a little hard-hearted after a while. You get a little hard-hearted. Yeah. Right, right, right. And it can be all kinds of things. And so I think this is kind of, a, in, a, in a way, this is what was happening in Israel. So this is what happens in the days when the judges ruled. Um, so back to Ruth. Um, this is the backdrop of the story. This is good, right? The days when the judges ruled, the Israelites were, were messed up. And it says, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Um, so the next few weeks, we're going to talk quite a bit about um, migration and immigration. Um, we're going to talk about loss. We're going to talk about despair. We're going to talk about what it means for someone to, to grieve the loss of family. Um, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, when I have to leave family, it's really hard. So I just came back from this vac uh, our little family vacation that we had this week. Um, and I don't want, this isn't a really good comparison, but I just want to share how I was feeling yesterday. So I'm, I'm driving and we, we say goodbye to all of our family. And leaving for me is like just gut-wrenching. I'm just like literally, I mean, I told Bethany yesterday, I'm like, my heart aches, honey. You know, like, because just, you just want to be with your family. You want to be, it's like it's this home. Y'all know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or if you don't know what I'm saying, that's, that's also a thing. I mean, not everybody knows that. And, um, and so anyway, and I just, you know, kind of have these like tears sort of just like building up around my eyes and, and Bethany's kind of crying and we're both just, this is our family, you know, this whole thing. And, um, <laughs> and when you have to think about, when you think about, um, a woman and a man and their family and they leave everything they know. So this is just me leaving like Bass Lake, you know? Not a big deal. Probably gonna see them all again. But to leave home, everything you know, everything that you're about, your culture, the smells, the tastes, the people, the community, your your faith, the, the, the all the spots you would go to that reminded you of certain things in your childhood, to leave all of it and to not know exactly where you're gonna end up. Can you imagine? what that would have been like. So does anybody have a story here um, of a time that you had to leave something that you knew that was just brutal, that you would be open just to be vulnerable and share for a minute? I'm putting people on the spot, and that's okay. Not everyone's in the talking, but... Yeah? When I was 13, going to 14, my parents moved from the town, the small town in Ohio, that uh, we all, my parents are generations there, they moved to Oklahoma to go to school, and uh, yeah, that was kind of traumatizing. I got a little depressed for about a year. Just every single thing I knew, my grandparents, and it took about a year 
not be you went from Oklahoma to where? From Ohio to Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. And did you think you'd ever go back to Ohio? Um, I didn't know. Okay. I was just kind of going with my parents, what they were doing, and I didn't know. It was just really, the whole thing was so unknown. Like, we didn't know one person there, went to a new school, new church, everything, and didn't know anyone. Nothing. Yeah, and it was, it was terrifying. It was really scary. Yeah. Any other, anyone else resonate with migration? When I left California in 83, when I was transferred to Oklahoma, <laughs> so apparently Oklahoma is the there was quite a culture shock. Yeah. And uh, so after retiring from teaching, I decided to come back out here, which now I'm I miss my family so much. I'm moving back for, to Colorado in a few months. So I understand what you're saying about you know missing your family. You're a long ways away. So yeah. It's a hard thing. Yeah. Except a lot of us here have the opportunity to go back. But imagine leaving and not knowing if you could go back. Oh, Ian's got showing me his green card. Yeah. So, about five years ago, after spending about 44 years, 45 years in Canada, quite closely, British Columbia and West Russia. I moved to the United States. First, it was flying, so it was a little. Um, there's uh, certain aspects of you know, social culture and wine culture that are similar, which is a little easier, and the water is so um, But I tell you, this is a different land for me. There's just things that. It's just a totally different ethos. Um, I'm an eligibility worker for the county. Um, so I'm learning how America cares and California cares for the least of theirs. And it is it's so different than how Canada cares for the least of theirs. Canada has a lot of problems and they need to, they need to work on it. But it's a little bit more so down here. Anyway, it's the ethos in America is so different. Which is weird. I'm, I'm speaking my native tongue. And it's your native time. You know, it's so many things look similar between Canada and the United States, but there's two totally different worlds, and I feel it. And and um, my my middle brother is in stage four cancer right now. Um, and I don't have excess money, so uh, my other brother has been to visit him. He's a school teacher, which in Canada is a profession. So he makes really good money. And it's hard to just school teacher too to make so good money. So he's been been able to go visit her all two or three times. Oh, this week will be the third time, I think, since he's been diagnosed. And I haven't been able to get back up there to see him. So guys, got some airplane miles. We should talk afterwards. Um, Roger, you <laughs> I just like wanted that to happen right there. <laughs> like, it's just a effect. Go ahead, Rod. Yeah. I moved to uh, Idaho right after I got out of the I had to get out of the Celtics and I can't buy better. And when I got to Idaho, um, being a veteran was remarkable honor. And I couldn't understand what was going on in California, I couldn't understand what was going on in Idaho. And I felt like a stranger. 
So um, last question is, uh, we're going to wrap up here in a sec, but why, why do people migrate? What, are the, what, what, what causes someone to leave home? Okay. okay, so jobs, so just can't find work. You marry an American. You marry an American, okay. <laughs> sure, from Central and South America. Okay, so corrupt governments, corrupt communities. Uh, perhaps a famine of sorts, maybe not food necessarily all the time, but they're not getting getting what they need down there, right? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. <laughs> okay. Because I've never migrated to someplace other than. Uh huh. I lived 58 years in Arizona, uh -huh. so for me to come up here was a migration, but I. Different sort of migration, though. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's pretty there's something pretty serious happening right now in our world, right? In our own country, on the soil that we're on. And Yeah, it's sad, but but there's something there's something God is calling this community to. I don't know what it is exactly, but in, in some way that we're supposed to play a part in that. Um Totally, but it's it's yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's a part of what it means to be human is to migrate. And in some ways, I just want us all to identify with there has been some migration in our lives, and it's all been for very different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And and to just for a moment to step into Naomi's shoes and sort of just feel how palpable it would be to have to leave Israel to go to enemy territory and to not know if you're ever going to return. And if you do return, it may not be the same place that you return to. It'd be a totally different place. And what that what that loss is like. So I don't want to tie this sermon up with some bow. Like there's I don't have some like okay here's the aha moment. I want to leave the tension a bit um, because we're not further along in the story yet. We're still at the place of migration. And, and I do think there's something really big happening in our world right now. And we live in Humboldt County in Arcata or Eureka or McKinleyville, and this is where we are. And there, there's still some, some way, some role we have, and we may not be able to go help with places in Europe, but there's still something we can do that's different. And perhaps maybe it, just for a moment, it's just starting with our own story and going, okay, how did I migrate? How did my family migrate? Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.